This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Richard Rothstein about his groundbreaking book entitled The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Richard Rothstein, who is a leading authority on housing policy, explodes the myth that America's cities came to be racially divided through de facto segregation. That is, through individual prejudices, income differences, or the actions of private institutions like banks and real estate agencies. Rather, in his book, the color of law, without a doubt, makes clear that it was de jure segregation. That is, the laws and policy decisions passed by local, state, and federal governments that actually promoted the discriminatory patterns that continue to this day. Richard Rothstein is a research associate of the Economy Policy Institute and a fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He lives in California, where he is a fellow of the Haas Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. Richard Rothstein, welcome to Books, Beats, and Beyond. Thank you very much. I just want to say I truly enjoyed this book, and I just want to understand what inspired you, what motivated you to write this book. I, for many years, had been writing and researching about education policy, um, and that was my sole focus. Uh, but I came to recognize that there's no way that we could solve the most serious problems we face in education policy, which is a substantial and seemingly unchangeable gap between the achievement of black and white children, so long as children were attending racially homogenous schools. And the reason that uh, they were attending racially homogenous schools is because most schools uh, in urban areas today are located in segregated neighborhoods. So we can't address the problem of school segregation without addressing the problem of neighborhood segregation. And so I began to look into the um, causes of neighborhood segregation. And then in 2007, I read a Supreme Court decision that prohibited the school districts of Louisville, Kentucky, and Seattle, Washington, from adopting very, very modest uh, school uh, desegregation plans. These were plans that enabled uh, high school students to choose the high school that they would go to within their district. But if the students who chose the school uh, would further exacerbate the segregation of that school, that student's choice would be passed over in favor of a student who would contribute to desegregation. So if you had a predominantly white school and there was one place left and both a black and a white student applied for that place, favoritism would given, be given to the black student. The Supreme Court said you couldn't do that. And the reason you couldn't do that was because the schools in Louisville and Seattle were segregated because the neighborhoods in which they were located were segregated. And the neighborhoods they were located uh, were segregated, the Supreme Court said, uh, de facto because of personal choices or private discrimination or um, income differences, but nothing having to do with government. And that seemed to me uh, to be a questionable 
statement by the Supreme Court, so I began to look into it further. And in the course of the next eight years, I uncovered that not just instances of state-sponsored segregation, but came to the conclusion that without a federal, state, and local policy, we would not have the kinds of segregated neighborhoods in this country that we have today. And so we have, in effect, a, as you said, a de jure system of residential segregation. And that requires a remedy under the Constitution. It's not just that we have the opportunity to remedy it. Under the Constitution, if you have de jure segregation, a violation of constitutional rights, we're obligated to remedy it. So that is how I came to write this book. Wow. And, and um, you know, that, that was what fascinated me about this book because I, you know, I always thought there was something underlying, you know, maybe there was something that the government did do, but I didn't do enough research to solidify that point. So I was on the fence between de facto and de jure segregation, as you defined it. But reading this book shows that, yes, it was government-sponsored. And there, there was a part in the book where you talked about um, the uh, Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, uh, and its deep involvement in residential segregation. But before you talk about uh, the FHA's involvement, what are the responsibilities of the FHA, and how much power does this uh, uh, department hold? Well, the FHA was the Federal Housing Administration. It was established as a New Deal program in 1934. Uh, and it was designed initially to um, provide mortgages for uh, families to uh, purchase, uh, really working class families, to purchase single family homes. Uh, before that time, uh, mortgages were uh, lasted typically two to five years. There was no amortization, so you had to refinance, find a new lender at the end of every two to five year period, and you got no equity. Uh, all you did was pay interest every month for your uh, loan. The FHA was designed to create uh, the concept of an amortized mortgage, which is one that extends for 20 or later 30 years, uh, and that uh, with each monthly payment, you accumulate some equity. So it's a combination of interest and principal that you pay off each month. That was a new concept that was um, pioneered by the New Deal. Mm -hmm. The uh, Many people are familiar with the fact that uh, the FHA, over the course of the next uh, half century, typically uh, uh, refused to uh, grant mortgages to African-American families in African-American neighborhoods because those neighborhoods were – uh, the term is redlined. Mm. But few people are aware of the fact that the FHA had a much more powerful role in, in creating federal housing, American housing policy. The FHA also guaranteed bank loans to developers of entire subdivisions. Uh, and those bank loans were conditioned, uh, those guarantees were conditioned on the developer's commitment not to sell to African Americans. And in many cases, the FHA required those developments to um, include in the deed of every home a clause that prohibited resale to African-Americans. So the entire suburbanization of the country that went on in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s uh, was subsidized by the Federal Housing Administration on a whites-only basis. And this was the predominant force that created what scholars later came to call a white noose 
of suburbs around urban African-American communities. So developments that we're familiar with, like Levittown, east of New York City, or Westlake, uh, south of San Francisco, or Lakewood, uh, south of Los Angeles, and hundreds and hundreds of uh, subdivisions in cities in between, were all financed by the Federal Housing Administration on a whites-only basis. And it was the predominant force, or one of the most predominant forces, that created the segregation that we knew today. At the time, um, and I'm talking about the 1940s and 50s, uh, modest homes uh, that were built in these subdivisions in places like Levittown or Westlake sold very, for very uh, little money. They, were, they sold for about eight or $9,000 a piece in, in those days, which is today about $100,000 in, in um, our today's currency. Uh, working class families can afford to buy a home for $100,000. Uh, it's only twice national median income. Um, and so both black and white families could have afforded to move to the suburbs with this FHA program. The fact that the FHA prohibited African Americans from taking advantage of the program and required that the developments uh, be all white, uh, that and not any uh, income differences between black and white families is the cause of the metropolitan segregation uh, that we see today. I think what's interesting is, you know, when we think about this, most of us think about this just happening in the South. But given an example like Levittown, a lot of this also happened in the North. And then you went in deeper and said that this this was also uh, nationwide. And, and, and what's interesting is there's a lot of uh, amendments in the U.S. Constitution that, you know, forbid this kind of discrimination. So how was the FHA able to skirt these these the, the Constitution in this way? Well, in the same way that uh, in the South, uh, school districts skirted the Constitution uh, by uh, uh, segregating schools. Uh, the, the FHA uh, was unabashed about its uh, segregation policies. This wasn't hidden. It was written in the manual that the FHA sent out to uh, underwriters all across the country who had to appraise both uh, entire subdivisions and individual homes uh, for FHA uh, subsidy eligibility. So this was not uh, something hidden. It was not something they skirted. They were open about it. And uh, uh, it, But it was a constitutional violation. We don't think that today, um, we don't think today that uh, before the Supreme Court um, in 1954 ruled that schools had to be integrated, that somehow segregation was constitutional before 1954. Of course it wasn't constitutional. It was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court had erroneously permitted it. And in the same fashion, the FHA's policies uh, that it pursued in the mid-20th century were equally unconstitutional, a violation of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments to the, and even the Thirteenth Amendment to the Constitution. So um, the fact that the FHA later changed its policy uh, in the late 1960s when the Fair Housing Act was passed doesn't mean that it was somehow constitutional before then. Yeah, a good point. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
How many of y'all had the past I've had? You and your moms, but no dad. Seems like a normal thing. Ain't that sad? If you feel what I'm saying, people raise your hand. Roaches reside, but paid no rent. Crawl through your food soon as they get the set. Julio caught one in his head. That was weird. Back of mind thinking, when we gonna get out of here? Mommy got bills plus son and self to feed. How long can we last on welfare cheese? No hot water running. Boiling. Uncle George, busy drunk, didn't make the toilet. In 88, new seed, new mouth to feed. By then, cracking AIDS, heavy in the street, soda can, bottle exchange, a supermarket. Same time, Chucky OD, an apartment. Kids buying cigarettes and beer for their parents. What kind of future for them are you preparing? Decepts ran wild, keeping 90s grimy. That passed behind me, so fast and blinding like sandstorms. New York be our place. Hustle $40, Adidas right in your face. Boom box the spots, turn up the bass. So many stories to reflect, I can't even and trace. Don't go. Government cheese again, I can't stand the taste. This is for my dead homies that died on that paper chase. Moms couldn't pay the bills, so we lost the place. I wanna be more than a ghetto kid with a dirty face. You you had also a chapter in there that was surprised. That, that shed some light to me was when you talked about public housing and who it was originally for um, and, you know, how that changed over time. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, I consider the, the public housing program the second most powerful factor in addition to the FHA policies that created the residential segregation that we know today. Um, Public housing actually began a year before the FHA. Uh, it was another New Deal program. Uh, the first civilian public housing was built uh, beginning in 1933 by the Public Works Administration, a New Deal agency. And uh, the agency was charged with trying to both uh, stimulate construction by building public housing and also provide homes for many families that were homeless. It was not designed for poor people. The public housing that the New Deal um, started was um, designed for middle-class families, for working-class families who were homeless in the Depression, who were doubled up with relatives because they were temporarily unemployed or had lost their homes. And so this was a primarily, uh, primarily a program for white middle-class, lower middle-class families. Uh, in my book, uh, The Color of Law, the frontispiece is a picture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president, handing keys to the 100,000th family to receive public housing under the New Deal. And uh, that family is in a crowd of uh, whites, all obviously middle class, uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the project was a, a whites-only project uh, built by the uh, federal government. So the federal government began a public housing program in the New Deal, and it began it in a segregated fashion, building separate projects for whites and a few projects for blacks, but also segregated. And in many cases, the Public Works Administration and its successor New Deal agencies uh, used this public housing to create segregation in uh, communities that had never before known uh, segregation. Uh, in my book, The Color of Law, I, I describe the great African-American novelist and playwright, uh, Langston Hughes, who describes how he grew up in an integrated neighborhood in Cleveland uh, in the uh, late 1910s, uh, after, uh, just during and after World War I. Uh, his, um, and many, many neighborhoods at that time 
were integrated uh, throughout the, the North and the South. Uh, Langston Hughes described how his best friend was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl. This was an integrated neighborhood he lived in. The Public Works Administration uh, demolished the that neighborhood, that integrated neighborhood, and built separate projects for blacks and whites, uh, creating uh, segregation where it had not before been known. This became much more pronounced. <clears throat> excuse me. In the um, during World War II, when the uh, defense industry required hundreds of thousands of workers to migrate to centers of defense production. And in many cases, these uh, workers migrated uh, to places where there had never before been African-Americans living. Um, there was white migrants and black migrants. Uh, again, in, in my book, The Color of Law, I describe Richmond, California, uh, in Northern California, across the bay from San Francisco. Uh, we think of it today as one of the most liberal areas of the country. Well, Richmond um, had no African-Americans to speak of uh, before World War II, but it became a center of shipbuilding uh, because it has a deep water port. Uh, and uh, the Kaiser shipyards uh, turned out uh, many, many ships for the war effort. Uh, uh, workers flocked to Richmond to work in this defense industry, both black and white workers. The federal government built separate housing for the families of, of black workers and white workers. The black workers were housed in uh, projects uh, that were located mostly along the railroad tracks and in the industrial area of Richmond. The um, white families were housed in more substantial projects that were uh, built in, in the residential areas of Richmond, uh, creating a segregated community uh, that not only had not known segregation before, there weren't even uh, very many African-Americans to segregate. Mm. Had the federal government pursued a different policy, the whole uh, history of uh, residential segregation on the West Coast uh, would have been quite different. And this was true all across the country. Again, uh, uh, many people may uh, have heard of the Willow Run bomber plant in World War II built outside Detroit. This was a plant that uh, built, as it says, bombers after the war. Willow Run was turned over to the auto industry for the manufacture of automobiles. But the federal government had this uh, plant built. Uh, it was in a rural area. There was no, nobody living there at the time in, in Willow Run. The federal government built housing for white workers only for the Willow Run bomber plant. And African-Americans who wanted jobs in that plant would have had to figure out how to get there from Detroit. Wow. So this was a nationwide policy again. So these two policies that I've described uh, to you um, uh, combined created the segregation patterns that we know today, concentrating African-Americans in public housing, but permitting whites, once the civilian housing shortage eased, to move out of public housing into um, suburban single-family homes, leaving public housing as a primarily African-American institution, no longer for middle-class families because the, the jobs, uh, the industries moved out of the uh, areas near the public housing and moved out to the suburbs where the white workers were, leaving a population in public housing that was much poorer, much more minority uh, than it had originally intended to be. Wow. Yeah, you know, um, I thought that was fascinating about your book, like how there were, there were so many uh, communities around the nation that, that weren't segregated, and the government intentionally went in to segregate these neighborhoods. It just makes you think, what would the nation's landscape look like today if – these policies weren't put in place 
is, is, is just fascinating. Well, that, that's correct. And, and I am certainly not suggesting that there was not private prejudice involved. I'm not yeah. suggesting that people had personal choices. I'm not suggesting that there wasn't action by private real estate agents, discriminatory, and by banks. Um, all of these played a role. But without the federal government structuring and reinforcing uh, these private decisions, uh, none of these uh, private factors would have been powerful enough to um, uh, create the segregated landscape that we have today. Um, right. For example, if the federal government, when it um, created the single-family home suburbs that I described, well, certainly there were uh, families, uh, white families in those suburbs who didn't want to have African-American neighbors. Mm -hmm. But had the federal government had a non-discriminatory discrimination policy when it created these suburbs, they would have had to get used to African-American neighborhoods. And over time, I believe they would have done so, and we would have had a much more integrated metropolitan landscape. I see. So you were talking about how, you know, once everything made sense and the pe white people were able to move out to the suburbs, and then when African-Americans tried to move in these communities, you, you had a, um, a parts of your book where you talked about how you know, there was racial covenants when it came to the HOAs and also how if there was any violence that went along uh, toward those African-Americans that move in those communities, there was really no one to help stop that violence. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Well, sure. Uh, the, um, there were thousands of instances of violence committed against African-Americans who did manage to move into predominantly or overwhelmingly or exclusively white neighborhoods. Typically, these were neighborhoods um, that were inner ring suburbs uh, because as the African-American population expanded in urban areas, the, the African-American communities became so overcrowded that uh, people had to find new places to live and African-Americans were willing to pay much more than uh, whites were willing to pay for houses in uh, neighborhoods that adjoined uh, black communities so simply because they uh, were so desperate for housing, so much so much more desperate for housing than whites were. Uh, so, the, But these were typically middle-class families. It's, these were not poor people. These were middle-class families, uh, black families, uh, needing housing and wanting to move into single-family homes, and typically uh, their moves were met by violence. Uh, the chapter in my book that you've referred to describes how not only did the police frequently not um, uh, prevent this violence, but sometimes they abetted it and encouraged it. Um, in, in one case I described, in a suburb outside Chicago, the police actually came in and removed the families or, or uh, uh, belongings of uh, people of African Americans who had moved into uh, an apartment in this case. They just removed the belongings, and when the... Uh, the renters came back at the end of the day. The the police simply told them that they'd been evicted. Wow. Uh, so, and and uh, there were many cases where uh, the police encouraged um, bombings of homes, arson attacks, uh, failed to uh, to uh, arrest well-known perpetrators. Uh, so this was a, a form of of state sponsorship of uh, organized violence to uh, prevent African-Americans from integrating those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And again, we're talking about across the country. This yeah. is not something that was isolated in the South. Uh, there were there were hundreds of these kinds of incidents in, in uh, Detroit and Chicago and Cleveland and 
um, uh, other major urban areas. We'll be right back. I'm just a boy from the hood. I feel like furious styles. Gentrification in that ghetto. This nation is ours. We built this shit. Just a boy from the hood, I feel like furious styles, gentrification in that ghetto, this nation is ours, we built this shit, yeah, yeah, we built this shit, losing that ghetto, but we don't even know it, only use the curb for the liquor we pawn, nigga got shot, now it's time to mourn, is what it is, baby, like, move on. Got a little struggle cause it made me strong Whole fools in the hood, now the rent got raised But I'm still living off minimum wage Nigga can't even afford to stay Next thing you know, they gon' own the block Shit too high for the mom and pop Stoles we was raised on on the block Now we gotta make way for a coffee shop Can't take shit so they buy the land Living next door to the fireman And a couple with a dog but they don't even speak Walking around acting like they're better than me Cause they make six figures with a college degree I grew up around here, these ain't apartments to me Steady jacking up the price but you gotta be cheap Motherfuckers ain't fooling me. I love my skin and I love my soul. We was all slaves with the lie they told. We started out kings with diamonds and gold, but it took our shit, baby. Ain't that cold? I'm just a boy from the hood. I feel like furious styles. Gentrification in that ghetto. This nation is ours. We built this shit. Yeah, yeah, we built this shit. I'm just a boy from the hood. I feel like furious styles. I think something that also was interesting about the book was how slums were created, you know, and 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 what that perception does to the overall nation in regards to how they perceive how African American communities are. Uh, you, you would you would talk about. Uh, something like I think it was called like economic zoning. Some some parts of a city might be in, industrial zoning. I think is what you called it, and and but that was mostly in African American uh, sections of town, and and what this perception created and kind of helped um, uh, exacerbate white flight in a sense and just the perception of how it would feel to live around African Americans. I was wondering if you can talk about those points a little bit sure sure uh and if you don't mind let me go back a minute and talk about uh, add something to what i said before about the violence sure you know all it would have taken would have been a few prominent arrests mm. of uh perpetrators of violence uh, to put an end to this uh, the fact that it went on for so long for so many years and in so many places uh indicates how much how complicit the government was and so as i said earlier it's not that that whites were not uh, racially biased it's not that they didn't engage in violence but uh but for uh, government sponsorship and uh, support for this violence as as i say but for government sponsorship and support of these other uh, 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 discriminatory activities we wouldn't have the kind of segregation we have um, going on to the point that you, that you just asked me about, uh, 
It's true, uh, the, and I do describe this in the book, that in many cases, uh, if uh, an industry wanted to locate in an African-American residential area or a toxic waste dump wanted to uh, locate in a, in a urban area, in a residential area, zoning boards would permit it to do so if the neighborhood was African-American, but not permitted to do so if it was white. So it deteriorated African-American neighborhoods. Even more important was the fact that African-American neighborhoods became so overcrowded. And the reason they became so overcrowded is, again, because African-Americans had no other options of places to live. Uh, they were not permitted to leave uh, these neighborhoods and to find homes in, in uh, suburban or in outlying districts. So the neighborhoods became very, very overcrowded. Uh, families began to subdivide their homes. Uh, partly because they couldn't get mortgages and had to pay so much more for housing than white families did, and partly just to accommodate relatives who needed housing. Well, so the neighborhoods deteriorated. They became overcrowded. Uh, much more life went on in the streets, uh, not inside homes, as is typical in middle-class neighborhoods. Um, and whites saw this. They saw the deterioration of these neighborhoods. In many cases, the housing stock deteriorated because of the overcrowding and the subdividing. They saw these neighborhoods become slums, and they concluded erroneously that uh, African Americans must have slum characteristics, not realizing, and it takes some sophistication to realize this, not realizing that the slum conditions were not created by the residents. They were created by the economic uh, policies that were pursued by local, state, and federal governments uh, to deteriorate those neighborhoods. And so as a result, when, when African-Americans attempted to move into white neighborhoods, well, whites typically concluded that they were going to bring slum conditions with them, thinking that uh, the slum conditions were characteristics of the families and not of the conditions in the neighborhoods they left. Yeah, that, though, that was amazing, that, that connection, because um, without – and that kind of, in a sense – makes why some of us think of why it's de facto segregation, right? Like, okay, some people think, like you said, be African-Americans in most of the communities might look like uh, slums or so forth. And, you know, because of that, that's the reasons why we might have our neighborhood segregated, not realizing that's more de jure segregation. And um, I was wondering about what, what, what about the argument uh, that the reason that they're are not more African-Americans in white communities is because of the low income levels of African-Americans. What, what do you say when someone says this? Well, in, in, in The Color of Law, I also uh, have a chapter in which I um, describe uh, federal government policies that also depressed African-American incomes. So although one of the reasons that African-Americans today cannot uh, move into middle-class neighborhoods is because their incomes are inadequate to do so, those incomes didn't arise naturally, and they were also the product of uh, federal government policies in the mid-20th century. So, for example, I described how in the, the, during the New Deal again, uh, the federal government adopted a program, the National Labor Relations Act, which... Uh, permitted the federal government to certify unions uh, for exclusive bargaining rights with their employers. When uh, the uh, National Labor Relations Act was passed, was adopted uh, in Congress, it had been sponsored by uh, Senator Robert Wagner of New York, 
And the original bill that was considered by Congress had a provision in it that prohibited unions that benefited from government certification uh, to discriminate against uh, African Americans. They had to be uh, inclusive unions. Uh, that provision was uh, eliminated from the bill during the, uh, as a result of lobbying uh, during the bill's deliberation. And so the National Labor Relations Act was passed without a requirement that unions had to practice non-discrimination. The result is that uh, throughout the mid-20th century, most of the unions that uh, controlled uh, work in construction and in the development of these suburbs that we were talking about were whites-only unions. African-Americans couldn't join and they couldn't participate in the uh, big employment boom that took place uh, after World War II in building uh, suburban homes. Uh, the uh, federal government, the National Labor Relations Board, didn't uh, decide that the, it was a, a violation of the Constitution to certify a union that excluded African Americans until the 1960s, and it didn't begin to really enforce that until the 1970s. So throughout the entire mid-20th century, not only could African Americans not live in the suburbs, but they couldn't participate in their construction. And that period of time, the post-war period, was the time when white blue-collar workers saw their income gains um, grow um, rapidly, and the middle class was really created in that time by keeping out African Americans. Uh, the other major factor, and perhaps even more important in the uh, economic differences between whites and blacks today, relates back to the uh, FHA policies that I described. I, I mentioned to you earlier that uh, at the time that these developments were being created, uh, the homes were selling for about $100,000 in today's terms, about twice men, national median income. Uh, today, those homes sell for three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000, sometimes $500,000. Uh, that's seven or eight times national median income. The white families who bought those homes with federal government sponsorship in the mid-20th century gained over the next few generations $200,000, dollars $400,000 in equity and wealth. Most families in this country today who have any wealth get it from their housing equity. Uh, African-American families who were um, prohibited from um, living in those single-family homes and were required to uh, have to, had no, no other options except to rent homes in, in urban areas gained none of that wealth. Uh, today, uh, African-American incomes are about 60% on average of white incomes, mm -hmm. but African-American wealth is on average only 5% of white wealth. Mm -hmm. That wow. enormous difference between a 60% wealth income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is almost entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy in the mid-20th century, and it explains a, a, to a great extent why African Americans can no longer afford to uh, move into suburbs. Uh, in addition, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the appreciation of these homes, uh, as they say, from $100,000 in the mid-20th century to $300,000 or $400,000 today, makes the homes unaffordable uh, even to families who could have the uh, income to make a down payment. Uh, uh, Middle-class uh, uh, families can no longer afford, of any race, can no longer afford to move into uh, the suburbs where housing prices are typically half a million dollars. Right. So federal policy here, both in the labor market and in the housing field, uh, created to a large extent 
uh, the wealth and income differences that we see in, in America today by race. We'll be right back. of of de jure uh, segregation, especially in housing. How, what what is our responsibility as a nation and as a people? Well, there are many things we can do about it, but I don't spend a lot of time in my book talking about specific policy remedies because we can't begin to have a conversation about the kinds of remedies that are necessary so long as we operate under the myth that this all happened by accident. Mm -hmm. If we think that the residential segregation happened by a million different private choices and personal acts of discrimination, it's very hard to imagine how a million private choices uh, can undo that result. But if we understand that uh, the residential segregation of metropolitan areas was created uh, by unconstitutional government policy, then we can begin to discuss the kinds of remedies that uh, government policy can equally pursue to undo the segregation that it created. Mm -hmm. So the first step that we have to take is to uh, learn this history, uh, to discuss it, and to understand the obligation to remedy it. And once we do that, we can begin to have a practical conversation about remedies. It would be foolish today to propose remedies for this when nobody or that's an exaggeration, when few people understand the history that makes the remedies obligatory. So I do describe some remedies in the book, but I don't want to place great emphasis on it because the main purpose of my book is to try to contribute to that conversation so that we can understand the necessity of remedies and so that those remedies can become practical. Uh, I can, if you want, talk about a few of them, but the as I say, it would be a mistake to focus on remedies now before there's a new consensus about the causes. Uh, we could, for example, 
prohibit uh, suburbs from maintaining zoning ordinances today that prohibit the construction of single-family homes on small lot sizes or townhouses or uh, apartment buildings uh, that effectively exclude uh, low-income people and particularly minorities in, in urban areas. Uh, we could reform um, the subsidies that we give to um, low-income families, particularly minority families, especially minority families in the Section 8 program uh, because that uh, those subsidies today support primarily moves into already segregated neighborhoods because mm -hmm. the subsidies aren't great enough to uh, support moves into middle-class neighborhoods. We could reform that program. We could um, prohibit discrimination against uh, families that had uh, housing vouchers uh, to supplement their rent payments. Uh, today, landlords in most places in the country are permitted to refuse to accept the rental application if part of the rent comes from a uh, a voucher. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of discrimination should be prohibited uh, so that the families can move into apartments in predominantly middle-class neighborhoods and not be restricted only to apartments in the most segregated neighborhoods and urban areas. Mm -hmm. So there are many, many policies that we could pursue to uh, reduce residential segregation, to reverse it, but uh, there's not going to be the political momentum behind uh, reform policies so long as we are operating under the myth that this all happened by accident. Right. And knowing that you, you, you work, uh, you, you focus on education as well, I'm in my head I'm thinking if we focus on the youth and I don't know what they're doing in the schools to kind of address this in history classes or, or any, what are you trying to propose to help us understand this? Because like you said, you, you can have all these policies, but it's going to be hard to – uh, to in, implement and enact these policies if people keep thinking that this is de facto. You're correct. And there is a section, I, I have a section in my book in which I describe how uh, the American history textbooks are the most commonly used um, in schools around the country, uh, misstate this history, uh, deny the reality of federal government uh, involvement, make no mention of the fact that uh, the FHA operated uh, to, to create segregation, make no mention of the fact that civilian public housing was created on a segregated basis. Uh, I, I quote from a number of textbooks about how they, uh, uh, well, I don't know how else to put it, how they lie about this history, how they mislead about this history. And so I um, call on the readers to uh, press their local school boards to create alternative curricula uh, to teach this history accurately because if we don't teach this history accurately to the next generation, uh, they will be as little prepared to uh, engage in the kinds of reform activities that we've been talking about mm -hmm. as the current generation has been. Mm -hmm. So I, I think a very high priority is to uh, try to change the way in which this period of American history is taught in high schools so that students can graduate with a uh, accurate understanding yeah. of how the residential landscape in this country was created. And I think you made a great point in your book how when there was a lot of civil rights laws that were passed, you know, the next day was kind of easy for people to move forward and do something in regards to implementing those 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 um those um those actions. But when you talk about residential segregation, 
even if these are enacted, it's hard just to then start moving into a community or or so forth. It's like this right here is a big residential segregation is a big bulwark and really helping to desegregate organically this nation it seems like it you know like you said because the property costs more and so forth and because if you live in certain areas school districts are different this right here if we really understand this this can create a lot of change in a sense well as i said it's a much heavier lift yeah than um desegregating other areas as as you mentioned if you know we pass a, a law or have a court decision that prohibits uh uh, segregation on buses, the next day you can sit anywhere you want in a bus. But if you pass a law uh, prohibiting um, residential segregation, um, the next day nothing's going to happen uh, unless we engage in much more vigorous uh, policy than we're, um, we're, pre- we're prepared to do right now. Yeah. So, so how has writing this book changed you in any way? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, actually, it made me, and I know this may seem um, ironic or maybe uh, silly, but it made me much more optimistic. Mm-hmm. Because so long as we believe that uh, residential segregation happened by accident, as I've said, it's very hard to think of how it can be undone, undone by accident. Right. But as a result of uh, the research that I um, did for this book and uh, this, the history that I described that has now largely been forgotten. Mm-hmm. I came to the understanding that government uh, had a big role in creating residential segregation. If government did it, government can undo it. So it gives me actually more hope than I had before that we can actually do something about residential segregation if we have the motivation to do so. And that motivation uh, will come only if uh, and can come only if we understand uh, the unconstitutional way in which it was created. So it actually shows us a way forward that I think the de facto myth doesn't permit. And you know, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, all these, when people think of the uh, racism and so forth and how it's de facto, not just face talking about residential segregation, but just other things. They think that's just how it is. I love books like yours that show that there's evidence that, no, this was government-sponsored, this was manufactured, and because of that, knowing that that has happened, like you said, I'm optimistic, too, because it shows this is what happened and there are ways to get out of this. This isn't who we are. Uh, and uh, I definitely appreciate that about this book. Well, Richard Rothstein, thank you so much for being on Book Speeds and Beyond. Thank you very much. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you which we would then put toward the operations of this show. Um, And also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore.